Today's guest is David Burkus. Uh, David is a best-selling author, a keynote speaker, and he's an associate professor of leadership and innovation. This guy is a serious deal. His TED Talk has been viewed over 2 million times, and when he has time, he's a regular contributor to Harvard Business Review. I had a lot of fun with this interview, and we went all over the place talking about ideas and originality, as well as instructional versus big idea books. And then later on, we talked about the dangers of social media. I hope you enjoyed as much as I do. I give you David Burkus. Hey, thanks for coming on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. Now, I want to start off with a quote you used. It's somebody else's quote, but I really feel like it kind of summarizes your whole path. And that's falling in love with a future version of yourself. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. I, uh, I, I stole that quote from Scott Barry Kaufman, who stole it from um e paul torrance who is a creativity researcher and and really sort of um childhood education researcher and one of the things that he looked at was uh, there are always attempts to predict uh, from a young age what will lead to people's success right and almost always it sort of falls apart so we look at iq tests and and yeah iq can measure a decent amount of life outcomes but it can't judge who sort of becomes a success in the flynn effect Right, right. Yeah, you got you got that going forward itself too. But just, I mean, in general, the the predictive validity of it. I mean, so for example, like uh, it turns out that SAT scores correlate um, pretty much as well uh, to parents' income, like household income of the child, mm-hmm. than it does mm-hmm. to actual intelligence, what we call raw intelligence. But in terms of, um, we also look at it in terms of like, do the kids have grit? Do they have this certain personality, or whatever? And what E. Paul Torrance found was that a lot of things that we look at really don't. Um, predict that at all. The only thing that sort of consistently predicts it is what he called falling in love with a future version of yourself. In other words, as a, as a child, can you see where your path is headed and you really love what it is you're going to be? Right. And, um, I, the reason I, I resonates to that with that so highly is that my, my wife and I both ended up in sort of careers that as a child we could see ourselves in. She wanted to be a doctor. She's now a doctor. I wanted to be a writer, which is um, really, actually, I have to be honest, if you're if you're going to want to be a writer, marrying someone who wants to be a doctor is a really good career strategy. <laughs> Same with entrepreneur, by the way. You know, for sure. I mean, in, a, in, a, in, in the nonfiction world of books, especially being a, a writer is basically being an entrepreneur, right? Um, oh, yeah. it's, I mean, it certainly feels like it on certain slow days, I'll tell you that much. Um. So, but you know, both of us had that and I, I wouldn't by any means say it was all grit and driven, et cetera. It was just that, that future image of what this like, what this life would look like was sort of so compelling that it was worth pursuing. And because it's worth pursuing, you put up with it when it's hard. Um, and because it's worth pursuing, you work to get to know as many people who do it as possible. And you do all of those things that, that do it. And so, um, I didn't even know this, this quote until talking with a good friend of mine, um, Scott Barry Kaufman, who's an intelligence researcher and also a creativity researcher. And he was the one that taught it to me. And it was sort of, I guess, like when you heard, uh, me say it through Scott or post it through, through Scott, it was sort of like this, oh yeah, that actually explains so much about the story that I've been on for the last 15 years. I also like the fact that you stole it, which falls into your creativity myth, because <laughs> nothing is actually original. I mean, the, what is it Steve Jobs likes to say? Um, 
Well, actually, stole it from Picasso. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, good artists, uh, what is it? Great artists steal. I don't good artists borrow, quote. great artists steal, um, which is which is exactly what Steve Jobs would always tell you he was doing until someone stole one of his ideas, and then he would talk about how it was horrible, terrible, and he was going to go thermonuclear war on them for stealing his idea, right? Well, sure. Um, yeah. <laughs> But I mean, this is the case actually in so many things. All, all the the best way I've heard it explained um, for the nerd that is me is that all ideas are combinations of pre-existing ideas. So you don't necessarily steal outright. That's plagiarism. But you use multiple right. sources, right? And everybody that's ever come up with any idea has combined elements of different ideas. Depending on the field, sometimes we're honest about this and sometimes we're not. Like music, for example, is very honest about mm-hmm. who your influences are and that sort of thing. You can hear that that sound of their influences in their music, but other fields were, were in the polar opposite. Unfortunately in business, we are um, really, really quick to, to borrow and copy ideas, but also really wanting to clamp down on our intellectual property and on our um, thinking that our idea is original, which is that first fallacy. Um, one of my good friends and a fellow researcher, Bob Sutton at um, Stanford university has this thing he calls Sutton's law, which is that if you think you've had an original idea, you haven't, in fact, this isn't even my law. <laughs> That's perfect. That makes me think about um, comics as well. Every comedian early in their career, I don't know if you follow them, but they'll all admit which comic they were imitating until they started to learn the craft and get their own voice. Oh, totally. Oh, absolutely. And and um, and they'll talk about how they, they hung out and at comedy clubs trying to get a chat with that person, right? Or even seeing what jokes they discarded and then seeing like, well, maybe if I massage this a little bit, I can put it in my own. No, I, I mean, the, the irony is that thing that we call voice is, is just like, if you think about the way a child learns how to speak, they don't wait until they have a fully formed set of language. All they do is imitate and they imitate different people and they pick up on accents. They pick up on usages. They pick up on grammar from the people around them. They do it by copying. That doesn't change when you get older, right? So when it comes to the term to find your voice in whatever artistic expression we're talking about, it happens through the same uh, means. It, it, there is no what, what, uh, to, to throw a fancy, uh, Latin or possibly Greek, I don't actually remember, term <laughs> at you. There's no such thing as ex nihilo creation out of nothing. That's not actually possible. We're all working with raw material to combine it to do something. In the case of ideas, that raw material is someone else's idea. Well, that's actually built into our species, isn't it? Because we have not only genetic memory, but we're born useless. And we need to absorb from our parents versus um, octopus and things like that who are born with all the knowledge that they're ever going to have. Yes. I, the, so the, I, I'm trying to stay really true to, to – we bounce back and forth between like this blank slate idea and then exactly how much of, of us is instinctual or genetically heritable or et cetera, et cetera. Um, so it's hard to put a definitive on it, but yes, in the terms of what we would call sort of conscious thought, the ability to think about the future, the ability to think abstractly, those are all things that, that we learn to develop after, uh, we come out of the womb for sure. And the way that we do it again is by, is by mimicking and playing pretend. That's all kids do when they grow up. All they do is play pretend. Um, in, in fact, I, I, there are countless stories of parents 
being sort of embarrassed because they're watching their kid play pretend and they pretend to them, right? So then they just like pick up a Lego brick and stare at it like it's a phone because I'm pretending to be daddy, right? So, <laughs> so we all, we all do that copying thing um, from birth because it's, it is, it's how we learn how to have those abstract ideas, those external ideas for sure. I don't know if actually I should say I don't know if Octopi can forecast into the future, but I, I suspect not. However, to get into genetics, there is a super interesting line of thought that the octopus DNA differs from so many other species that it should be similar to that people suspect like, well, maybe this didn't come from us. Hmm. Yeah, not not me because that'd be crazy. But I have definitely read that article somewhere on the black hole that is the Internet uh, when I'm waiting <laughs> for a plane. Well, now you know it must be true. Right. If it's on the internet, it must be true. Now, it's interesting. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Um, I'm friends with a, another podcaster, Christopher Lockhead, and he's big into what he calls category creation. Okay. And he also wrote the book Niche Down. Would you put in the business environment the idea that people, as you put it, nothing is original However, taking other ideas and then putting the spin on it that differentiates you from another group, would that be creativity in business? Yeah, for sure. Or I mean, other, other times it's taking the idea and bringing it to a different category, right? Um, mm -hmm. So you're not necessarily creating a category. You're realizing that this category, this industry has yet to be served by, by this idea, right? And we, we see this um, often. The example that I like to use a lot of times is you look at Netflix, right? Everybody talks right. about how Netflix was this amazing disruptive innovation and a bankrupted blockbuster and blah, blah, blah. It's subscription. I mean, it's, it's subscript. We've been doing that for like a hundred years with newspapers and magazines. There's nothing sure. original about the mechanics of that. Figuring out that you could send a DVD by mail and, and like, it was an idea that couldn't migrate over into home entertainment until we had DVDs, but it's still an idea that migrated. It wasn't wholly original. And then once you get the idea of DVDs by mail, like the rest of the pieces of figuring out the business model fall into place, right? So we give it this huge disruptive innovation term. And, and it did for sure because Blockbuster didn't see it. But in reality, what it is is taking an idea from one domain and migrating it over. So, so absolutely, ideas migrate like that, and then in the process of migration, they have to morph uh, a little bit. And sometimes that creates a, a category, a new category, or, or what um, is sometimes also referred to as sort of a blue ocean strategy because now you've created this product that there wasn't, there isn't competitors for because it's serving a community that didn't even know they needed that thing yet. Um, those, and, and I'm sure in this category creation theory, that's, I mean, that's the idea. A lot of, uh, Silicon Valley, a lot of startup and any, any company that's trying to scale fast is trying to do that is to trying, trying to go to an area where there is no competition so they can very quickly become the dominant player in that field. Uh, but yeah, the, the best way, the best way to do that is to start by a lot of ideas and figure out which ones need to migrate over. Yeah. And actually Netflix was covered in the book play bigger, um, that he wrote, and the genius I feel about Netflix is that DVDs by mail wasn't the intent of the company. He sure. always wanted to stream video. That was his goal, but bandwidth sucked. So he came up with that means as a way to build a company until he could stream video. For sure. Although one wonders how they botched the rollout of streaming videos so horribly, knowing that they began with the end in mind and they still screwed that up. But, hey. but yeah, every, I guess everybody <laughs> makes mistakes. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's right there in the name of Netflix, right? And it was, it was, um, indeed always the goal. But, but again, even then, like we're talking about 
what is essentially using the internet to deliver a service on demand video that had prior been created by the cable companies, you know, tele- cable companies figured out on demand years ago, they just had the only good bandwidth, which was the auxiliary cable um, to do it in. And so again, we're, we're migrating an idea from one world um, to another, another world. Uh, I would say sure. that one's a little more disruptive because the goal was literally to take on cable and say, well, now we've got the internet. Um, so now we move forward. Of course, now we can also get into the grand irony in the U.S. that most of our internet access is controlled by one of the cable companies. But that's a mm-hmm. that's an episode of Adam ruins everything. That's probably not right for discussing <laughs> here. Oh uh, yeah, we, then we can talk about regulation that allows them to do that. And right? We no, precisely. About- we could we could be rallying for a, a huge time. And you know, I, on the day we're recording this, the uh, the Democratic debates are going on later today. We don't need to start them now, so we'll. <laughs> We can pivot. Good idea. But uh, back to the Netflix, because I want to draw a parallel to you. Yeah. He, um, I'm just going to give it to Reed Hastings, I guess. He took an opportunity on a, on a path. He was like, I want to stream video. How do I get there? Well, you wanted to be an author. And on route, you kind of became a professor. <laughs> Did a lot of things in in pursuit of trying to become an author, for sure. Um yeah, and if you so if you look at, at my my story, I I will say that was a response to market shifts as well. Um mm-hmm. but yeah, I knew when I was 14 years old I knew I wanted to be a writer. Well, I mean, at 14, 15, 16 years old you're obsessed with people like Jack Kerouac, right? Which is um not the writing style I ended up emulating. <laughs> that that whole not actually being famous till after you overdose thing didn't appeal to me on multiple levels. Right. Um, but when you're 16, you're dumb. That's what you think. And so I, I went to university to study um, English, to learn how to be that writer, and in the process found the world of social science and organizational behavior. Now, ironically, we did that through one of um, I consider the greatest nonfiction writers of our time, which is Malcolm Gladwell. Not not the best in staying true to the science, but as a storyteller, brilliant, right? right? And fascinated me. Several several different books um, came out while I was in school and right afterwards, and that led me to this path of, you know what, actually, this is what I want to do. I want to use good storytelling, good um, good writing to be helpful to people by bringing them insights from social science, behavioral science, et cetera. So that's what I went to graduate school and a, and a doctoral program for, I actually had no intention on doing the doctoral program, which is how I led to being an accidental professor. <laughs> what, what happened was essentially I graduated. I knew this was what I wanted to do. Started pursuing that route. Uh, my wife got accepted into medical school. So we got married in that summer between she started med school that fall. I got really bored. And by December, I was applying it at grad, grad schools, basically, because I was super bored because she was super busy. And I was working, um, but not, you know, she's working 80 hours a week and I'm working 40. So I, I started going to grad school as a way, in a way to make all of our dates study dates so that we would sort of be in the same similar boat. Um, and when I, I went to a two year long program, when that was done, I was still bored because med school is four years long. So mm-hmm. what do you do after a master's when you're like, okay, you're still in academic world. I guess I should be too. Um, I went for that doctorate. Plus, plus it's really fun because sometimes we get letters addressed to doctors, Burkett, like DRS period Burkett, oh, which is nice. just kind of fun. Um, <clears throat> not marketing pieces of a book because I don't know how you do that in a mail merge, but friends of ours <laughs> who, who know will do that. 
Um, so I went in and started a doctoral program basically for that reason to just kind of keep going, keep learning about this, et cetera. Um, I started that doctoral program when I also started a podcast about, um, behavioral science back when uh, this is kind of funny. I started a podcast, super hipster. I started it before it was cool. Yeah, what, what year like, was that by the way? Two, uh, January, 2010. Okay. Yeah, that's so a few years into it. It's yeah, it was I think I think it was around 2007 2008 that the um iTunes store started carrying podcasts, right? Or the app like iTunes 2005 or 6 I want to say. Really? I feel like it was later than that. Cuz I used to listen to them on the iPod. Well, right, but the i when did the iPod come out? No, you're right. I'm thinking the iPhone was 2008, right? 2007. So maybe I'm, yeah. I'm I'm thinking that instead of the actual iPod. I was the same way, by the way, for a long time. Like download them, <laughs> sync them to my little click wheel iPod. Oh um, yeah. And until literally until the iPhone had enough memory to rival the iPod, I still had my little download, sync it, click it into my car, car type of thing. Anyway, that's a huge tangent. Um, the idea behind it, I will, what I will say on this, I don't, I don't remember, um, when podcasting started in iTunes. I do know that when we started our show, January of 2010, we very easily hit the top 50 business podcasts in iTunes, uh, because there were 47 business podcasts in iTunes. <laughs> so 47 with a bullet and right, it kept rising. It, yep. Totally. <laughs> um, so, so uh, the idea was, to interview people who wrote the books that I liked and nobody really knew what a podcast was. Nobody really knew how to even judge whether or not one was successful. If you had like good quality audio and you had a good graphic design, people assumed, Oh, you know what you're doing. Um, you're a real thing. So that, that in a weird way worked when I started cold emailing all of these authors that I aspired to be like, um, did you know Jordan Harbinger back then too? I didn't, I didn't meet him until 2015. I think okay, maybe 2014. Um, yeah, he, he was off in his world doing something really similar. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it, it worked in the same, I mean, he was way more successful in podcasting than me. That's probably why he still does it, but it worked for me in the sense that it led to enough connections to start writing for good publications, to start building relationships with literary agents and publishers. It got me to that book thing along the way. An interesting thing, um, happened, which is, uh, you know, 2009, was also when uh, the Affordable Care Act passed. And mm-hmm. what I did not tell you in this way is the way that I was actually paying the rent was I sold drugs out of the back of my car. I was a pharmaceutical sales rep. Yep. And so when that happened, I started going, all right, this world is going to change and I need a backup plan. So suddenly that doctorate pivoted to become like, maybe this is my escape strategy. When I'm done with this, I can leave. Like as long as I don't get laid off before I finish uh, my program, I can pivot into the world of academia. And, and Wait, hold on a minute though. there. Yeah. So you were a PhD and still selling pharmaceutical. I was a PhD student and still selling pharmaceuticals. What okay. ended up happening in a lovely twist of fate is I got a full-time offer when I was ABD, contingent obviously on finishing the, the dissertation, but they basically hired and said, finish as long as you finish in the next year, we'll renew your contract. Um, hmm. But yes, I was probably uh, at least 30, 35 credits into a... Uh, a 45 or 50 credit doctoral program when I was still meeting people who got to say doctor while I was working on the ability to say it and trying to sell them uh, on the benefits of my blood pressure and antiplatelet drugs. Um, it was, it's also, it was another good sort of, okay, my wife is in medicine. How can sure. I understand half of what she's talking about? <laughs> right. 
type of, of job. So it worked for a lot of reasons, but I knew, all right, I need, I need to pivot out of this because the layoffs are going to happen. Ironically, about two months ago, I was meeting with um, a friend of mine who she and I worked in that, in that company at the same time. She still technically works there, which is great because she survived a downsizing that over like five years went from 2,300 employees down to like 600 Right. Oh, wow. um, some of some of that is regulation, and a lot of it is drugs going generic that they didn't have new things in the pipeline, et cetera. Um, so it was a good idea to hit the life rafts, and the world of academia kind of became that because it had to be. My original plan was to stay in that world of pharma until my wife basically finished, and then do the entrepreneur route, like you and I were joking about. Right After, at that sure. point, it doesn't matter. We ended up having to make that pivot because of those circumstances, and I don't. I don't regret it. It was kind of fun the way it worked out. It's just, um, it, it's funny because you can have that idea in mind and you can have that great plan and it still doesn't work that way. Like people talk about how, um, pilots, you know, you take off from one city and you say, you say we're flying to this city, but in reality, you're off course like 97% of the time. You just keep making course corrections sure. and you eventually get there. And, uh, I mean, that's, that's pretty much how it worked for me. I left, I left one city, which is that world of, of graduating college and knowing this is what I want to write about. And I started heading to the other one, but I had to make a lot of course corrections along the way. Yeah. But I think some of it's really good. I mean, pharmaceutical sales, I mean, sales period has to have been invaluable to you. One for learning the word. No. Yeah. I mean, and going on, I actually, and when I was a, a full-time uh, business school professor, I would actually say the same thing. Like the weird thing that always happens. And I don't know if this is unique to the generation or if it's, if it existed in the past is that sales organizations are the ones that hire most business school undergraduates, right? But just by mm -hmm. sheer numbers that there's more sales reps than a lot of other things. And there's a lot of graduates. And so they're going to find their way there. And yet a lot of them kind of didn't want to do that. You get out of, especially you get out of a four year, um, bachelor's program and you, your capstone classes are all about high level corporate strategy. And you, or even if you're in like, if you're in other, you're, you're learning, like you're a senior leader. And then the world reminds you that you're 22 and there's, it takes like 30 <laughs> years of so, but a lot of times there's that feeling like, Oh, sales is sort of beneath what I want to oh, do. Yeah. And in reality, what I tell people was like, no, you should, you should do it. And you should do it for like two years, have a plan. Um, but I think almost everybody should do two or three years at the beginning of their career in something where you've got to be persuasive, right? Because like what you said, it gets you used to that idea of rejection, but I think it also forces you to learn the dynamics of, of human communication, the dynamics of trying to persuade someone to your point of view, the, the dynamics of trying to understand their point of view, which is unfortunately lacking um, in a lot of areas right now. Um, all of that is necessary in order to actually succeed in a sales role. So I don't regret it at all. Um, and in fact, because I wasn't all that good at it when I began, uh, I loved that it was in pharma, which is a much softer sell than like if I had gone into like copier sales, right? Right. Oh, sure. Or, pay, or payroll processing or one of those sort of um, churn or, or SaaS selling, one of those sort of churn sales roles. Um, so, yeah, I, it worked out I mean, for a lot of reasons. But again, it's it's weird how life works out in that way, that you're off course 97% of the time, and in the end, you end up there, and, and you end up at your gate early. That I is, think you're, that's actually not true for most of flying in America right now. But, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You fly a whole lot more. Um, I think you brought up a really solid point, and that fits in with some of the things that I'm exploring and trying to discover. I've interviewed everyone from 
Cialdini students to FBI agents, CIA agents, etc. And I feel like everybody from Zig Ziglar to Jim Jones are doing the same thing on a spectrum. Well, pray tell, what is that spectrum? Um, essentially, it is a everything from an influence or persuasion all the way to full-blown manipulation. Hmm. And some of it is healthy, some of it is not, like anything else in life. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say, like, there. yeah, I mean, I would say, con- I don't know that I'd call it a spectrum, because I think it flips depending on intent, if that makes sense. Of course. Um, and it's intent to gain versus intent for their best interest. It's the same tools, right? Um, but yeah, I mean, I've got to be persuasive with my seven-year-old to get him to eat more than just bread and cereal all the time. Right. And your seven year old is manipulating you constantly. Right. Or learning how to play us off each other, which I think, you know, the five year old hasn't learned that yet. The seven has, and that's when it gets really crazy. <laughs> but yeah, but, but again, the, the goal is to do it for his own health. It's not because, you know, oh, sure. I'm, I'm too lazy to make him cereal again. I'll, you know, I'll do that. That's heck, that's easier than grilling hamburgers and then saying, you know, you need some meat in your diet or whatever. This is a weird analogy, but we'll go with it. Um, again, the, the intent is sort of positive. I'm doing this in order to take you to a, a, a better place, right? I'm doing this because it's actually in your best interest. I think that's when, um, that's when persuasion or influence, or, I mean, you could call it manipulation is the same tool set. You're definitely right on that. That's when it, when it flips to positive, when it flips to negative and I'm doing it because I have something to gain. That's when it's, um, definitely a detriment. And we could, we could look at it as spectrum, but like, let's call it a spectrum between like negative 20 and positive 20. And that zero is the flip, right? Yeah. It's, it's like the different. political, you've seen the political, um, you, right? The poli- principle. Um, if you take the right wing and left wing, it's really not a line. It's more of a you. Oh yeah. They, it bends towards authoritarianism on both sides. Yeah, exactly. I, and I kind of think of this as a similar thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, I don't know that you can overdose on somebody else on being interested in other people. I suppose if you're if you're so much of a giver that you've turned into a doormat, um, that can definitely be on the negative side on that side. And then obviously, uh, I mean, I would say it, it it curves to a you really quick. It probably looks more like a candy cane. If does that make sense? <laughs> right? Sure. Because it cur- it curves at that zero, but it's far it's far worse to be uh, good at manipulation and using it for selfish ends than to be good at it and, and end up. Do, doing it to help other people all the time and end up de- detrimenting yourself. Well, I like to um, follow it and I have Brian Ahern coming back on again, but I'm very concerned about ethical influence. And that's something I like about Cialdini and others. There, There's kind of a, a middle ground where it's a little gray and it can get a little, either a little sleazy or not sleazy. And it's not much of a shift. Yeah. And again, I think, I think intent is, is a huge part of that. The, I mean, the other thing is, is whether or not uh, the, <laughs> this is going to sound really weird, but I was actually thinking about this the other day, the sleaziness kind of comes with finesse too. Like there's a lot of, and I'm friends with some of them, people that mm-hmm. are sales trainers and they teach you like a script that's almost a flow chart, right? So you're going to say this and then they'll either reply with this or with this. And if they reply with this, you say that and like, sure. And, and that sounds awesome from stage or in a three-hour workshop and then you go do it to a real human and like humans can figure maybe it's because we've been on hold too long now in 2019 but like we can figure out when you're following a flow chart and you may still get to that point that 
you wanted us to get to, and maybe even that we wanted to get to, right? Mm-hmm. But I still feel manipulated because you were in that flowchart thing, right? So like a good example of this would be like, you can teach all of these sales tactics to someone who sells gym memberships, right? And, and right. with the majority of America, like overweight or obese, getting a membership to a gym is definitely a good thing. It's a net positive in somebody's life. Even if they only go there three times a year, that's still three times a year more that their heart has to sure. work harder. And so they're, they're three times a year less likely to die of a heart attack, right? So you could argue mm-hmm. it's still a good thing. But no one, I mean, even when you want to join a gym, you f- end up feeling manipulated when you go through that, right? Um, you know, it's funny. Intent actually could pull, could rescue some out of it, even without the finesse. It's like somebody may be clumsy, but if you feel like they're sincere and you can pick up on it, you sometimes may give them the benefit of the doubt. Well, right. Well, And, and, and it's not even, I, I wouldn't say it's even sort of a, I guess that clumsy would be the opposite of finesse for sure. I would just say it's that, it's that difference of whether or not you feel like they're actually listening to you, right? Or if they're listening to figure out where you are in the flow chart. Like I, bu- I bought a car one time and the guy made the mistake of letting me see like the, his computer screen at one point. And there's literally a flow chart with like eight stages <laughs> and he has got to click where I am in the process so that like, they can, and it's, I get, I almost get why you do it from a sales management standpoint. Cause then, you know, like, where are we losing customers and all that sort of stuff, but right. it's certainly, and I wanted the car and I still bought the car, but I certainly didn't have a positive experience from it, you know? And, and the, I mean, ironically, that was like 10 years ago. The same thing happened the last time I went to go buy a car. I had an amazing experience with the actual sales rep. And then they always hand you over to like the, the financing agent. And I didn't even need mm. to talk to the financing agent because we were going to pay cash, right? I'm like, <laughs> why am I talking to this guy? This guy's job is to sell me like tire protection and an extra yep. warranty and a bunch of stuff I don't need. Um, and so, so again, and that's where they that, make their money, by the way, for sure, for sure. I totally get it. Um, but I'm not interested in, in helping a car dealership make money. I'm interested in getting my car for as low as possible, right? So the interests are very different than what their interests are. And that's where that self-interest piece comes in. And that's where that, do I actually feel listened to piece comes in. You know what that I want to keep going with that because I feel like that takes me into what you seem to do with your books is you would go into an organization like that and dissect what exactly they're doing. Yeah. Would that be fair? Yeah. Yeah. Often. I mean, the, the, for sure, my first book, Domestic Creativity is all about the ways that organizations or organizational leaders or teams discuss creativity and kind of how it can help them or hamper them. Right. And so there's, there's a huge <laughs> amount of listening in that. Cause I'm going to go into the organizations and, and listen, how are we talking about this? How are we not talking about it, et cetera. Um, and in, and in the same capacity, like friend of a friend, my most recent book is, I would say a response to doing a lot of that listening, like, because people find that networking feels the exact same way as what we just described. People read a blog article about how to give an elevator pitch. And now they're trying to follow a script instead of listening to someone when they meet them and taking an active interest in them. They're trying to like nail the four, uh, four word elevator pitch or six word elevator pitch or whatever. And it just, it doesn't work as effectively as being there and being authentic. So, so for sure, my, I would say my, my bigger goal after listening is to try and still, it's the, uh, it's the Gladwell fan in me, try and find some piece from empirical research on human behavior that explains what's going on here. What am I hearing? What am I seeing? And how can we make it better for sure? Well, pivoting back to Gladwell and that I think about, um, I've had Margot Lightman and she teaches storytelling. Mm-hmm. In essence, 
when I was discussing with her, she recruits or she was a story scout for This American Life. Oh, interesting. At one point. And so my big question was, how do you pick? What, you know, what makes you determine to be a story? And she said, the basic formula is to look at a situation that seems to be one thing. But when you look at it again, it's actually something else. And then when you look again, it's yet another thing. And I feel like that's Malcolm Gladwell completely. His whole podcast, Revisionist History, is all about these are the events that happened. These are the facts. We know this, but what did it really mean or say? Is that similar to what you're trying to do? Yeah. At- yes. Yeah. I mean, with, with, with the exception of that episode where he just rants about how much he hates golf. Um, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, um, that's yeah, because I he's mean, a runner. You know, there's, there's a, there's a broader thing at work here. So, so, um, from a journalistic standpoint, I, I love that. And Gladwell's sort of trained as a journalist. One of the smartest things, um, that I, uncovered discovered was told to me I, I don't actually know is that there is in the in the world of publishing there are basically in nonfiction um there are basically two types of books there are instructionals and big idea books right um or how to and big idea and publishing uses the term big idea is this a big idea book etc and what defines a big idea book is basically that, that you can f- fill in the blanks. You can finish the sentence. Most of us think this, but really this. Right? Most, most mm. of us think that this is what's going on in the world, but really this. Adam Grant, give and take. Most of us think that, uh, that, um, nice guys finish last. In reality, givers and takers are both represented in the success, um, spectrum. And here is the, qualities of successful givers, right? Heck, even Gladwell, right? Outliers. Most of us think that, um, that it's just a matter of, of hard work, that it's just a matter of grit. I mean, this is ironically the 10,000 hours rule is the thing everybody remembers. But in reality, the book is most of us think it's all this. In reality, it's a combination of hard work, but right. also special circumstances. And we as a society should be working to create more of those special circumstances for other people, right? It's, it's always that. And that's how you know you sort of discovered a big idea, right? Friend of a friend. Most of us think that networking is about running up the score and getting to know as many people as possible. In reality, it's about understanding the community you're already a part of and figuring out how to navigate and create value for that community, right? So if you can't, if you can't fill in that, most of us think this, but really this, you may not have a big idea book. You probably have an instructional. Here's how to do these things, how to win friends and influence people or, or whatever. Both are fine in the world of publishing, but like, um, they follow two different metrics. And that second one, that big idea is really similar to what you were just saying on the, how, you know, you found a good story is you think it's about this. You look a little deeper and it's really about this. And, and maybe there's multiple levels to it. You think it's, you look even deeper and maybe it's about this, et cetera. Yeah. And that goes into Cialdini and the mystery and surprise and, Onto friend of a friend, dormant ties. And I, ironically, when I was reading that, what came to my mind was there is an organization where dormant ties are just part of a career path. And most of the people who go through this organization retire do wind up doing very well for themselves. And that's the military. I was going to say, okay, you got to tell me the organization. The um, military. Yeah. I, you know, it is built in. Well, and it, so what's interesting is, it, I mean, it definitely is because people rotate around, right? You're on an assignment. You're there for 18 months to three years or whatever. Then you rotate through. You've got new ones. So even, even in your active duty years, you Correct. are constantly forced on weak ties. Um, 
and dormant ties and sometimes they get reactivated and sometimes you have to force it. Ironically, we see it after the fact, like I was actually reading um, a little story about this. It's weird. Cause I was in Singapore. Um, Singapore is the second most militarized country in the world. The most militarized would be Israel. Um, both of them require national service. And basically I was reading this article again, way too late at night, through the click hole of the internet. <laughs> I was reading this article, basically attempting to explain the innovative success of what's going on in the startup world in Israel because of its, its military conscription, the idea that everybody serves for two years. And what you end up with when you get out is a huge amount of weak ties. But unlike in the United States or somewhere, somewhere else, it's a huge amount of weak ties in a very small space. It's not a very big country, right? So the likelihood right. that you're going to re run into all of those people, especially in the Intel, I mean, most of these startups are basically cyber defense, intelligence, et cetera, alumni from, from the military. So you, you definitely see it. Um, and I, I think it forces a lot of things. The, the irony is that I don't think, um, I don't think we do a good enough job, especially in the United States of, communicating the value of those weak and dormant ties because we have a um even in the even in the way that we do things we have a very like this is home life this is military life and you go back and forth which is true and by the time you get out you might think of it as like two different buckets right um sure. so yeah I, I i don't think we leverage it it's definitely there i don't know that we leverage it enough as we, as we should because it definitely i mean happens as we know from the research like dormant ties are a huge source of new information and new ideas to circle it all the way back to the beginning of our conversation precisely because those people are studying different ideas and the best ideas are combinations of pre-existing ideas so if you mm -hmm. are checking back with those dormant ties you're getting information that you probably didn't know and now you've got more raw material of ideas um, and it's something I think we should probably teach a, a bit more to everybody, but especially in that military context of a lot of this is about reactivating those weak ties that the military so generously built for you. Well, uh, ironically, the, the whole system of the military kind of enforces it to where it's intuitive, because if you reply, if you report to a unit, you have to immediately fit in one way or another, mm -hmm. you've got to get a mission done especially in a wartime situation. Another parallel I saw with the military is um, you made a lot of hay with your TED talk about sharing knowledge of salary. <laughs> made a lot of hay is being really generous. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I won't determine your salary off of it. We got a lot of attention of and a lot of hate mail. That's all I'll say. You know what though? That, that's actually really I'm starting to see that now, but that's probably the best thing that happened. I mean, you're not going to get anywhere with that polarization. For sure. For sure. And, and again, that, that polarization to go to the military, military, state employees, teachers were all like, I don't see what the big deal is. Why are people like, how, how is, why are people even watching this? All of us have been doing this forever. Right. And then the private mm -hmm. sector ha is like, no, by, by no means. I mean, it's, it's, it's funny because. You get, you get called like the range of um, insults on the, it's that ideological you again, you get called the range of insults. You're like, no, I mean, it's no, I don't, I don't know that I would label myself as any of those, um, you know, everything from communist to fascist. Right. And you're like, I, I just think that in an organization, it works better if everybody knows that the salary system is fair. Um, not necessarily fair in terms of paying what you're worth to use the military as an example. 
I don't think right. any of those people get paid what they're worth. Um, no. But fair in the sense that you know what the system is. And so, you know, one guy or girl's not taking advantage of it and making you um, basically a loser because you're falling behind. It's, it's a uniform system. Um, it's an equitable system, even if it's not a fair one. That's the word that I'm searching for. Sure. You know what? It doesn't even have to be um, a very unionized because I consider that a similar type of thing too, where um, somebody could make more money than somebody else. And it could be revealed. Well, that's our top salesman. I mean, you've been around the sales world. Yeah, for sure. And Equitable and equal never mean the same thing, right? Exactly. Um, and if we do, we have the exact same problem, um, which is that this is unfair because that person's putting in a ton of work. In in that case, your your star performers are actually most of the time in an inequity situation. Your right. star performers are the ones are going to leave because why wouldn't they? Why wouldn't they want to go somewhere where they can they can make more? Um, and 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 candidly, it doesn't. And this is what in a lot of follow up interviews because I got seven minutes to state my case. I definitely missed certain things, um, but in follow up interviews. I was always careful to to point out that it doesn't actually even need to be everyone knowing what everyone gets paid. It, it, you can actually be transparent enough to satisfy most people by saying, here's how we determine salaries. And if you want to go around and survey people on these different variables and then plug in the numbers into the formula and figure out what everyone gets paid, like, great. But that's not the point. The point is to very clearly and communicate, very clearly communicate, this is what we're using to determine compensation. Um, and it's uniform throughout the company. And, and that way we know it's equitable. And if you want to change it, let's have that conversation because transparency always invites that conversation. But even that conversation is now received not as a challenge to an unfair system, but as a, we're all in this together to make the system better. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks. I have, I mean, I, I will say, so that, that talk came to out in like September of 2016. I've had a lot of practice talking about this idea since then and uh, and I've, I've gotten a lot of i usually if you reply to me in an angry way i won't even reply but if you reply in like an inquisitive way i've got a lot of rehearsal on on how to explain <laughs> these things my favorite by the way i was on um the year after it came out i was on the ted radio hour with guy Raz, and guy mm -hmm. straight up asked me my salary and I had already left the university at that point. So I, I basically said, like, I can't answer that question because I don't even know how much I'm going to make this year. It depends on book sales and speaking gigs and whatever. And then I, and I said, I can tell you that my last salary when I was full time was this. Well, that second part got cut out. And so I, oh, I probably got four or five pieces of like emails that were like, you're a phony because you didn't even say it. I'm like, no, come on. You're smart enough to know that not everything that gets recorded gets aired. Come on. No, they're not. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> that's a good point. And, and you're not going to be one of the um, hustle porn types who put up the uh, spreadsheet. We pulled in X million dollars this month. Well, no, try, try, it was. I will tell you now, it was sixty four thousand. So no, it was not a lot of money. Uh, <laughs> in Oklahoma, that's not bad. It's a comfortable living. Um, it, I'm still glad it wasn't the only salary in my in the household, but it's it's not bad for where cost of living is for me. Well. On that note, um, I think you kind of stated how you choose your topics. What what has really surprised you? I mean, what is one thing that you went in thinking one thing and then you came out going, wow, just flummoxed? Yeah. So um, and I, I, I could have done a whole truthfully, I could have done a whole big idea book um, about this, but then I would be stuck in the political world for a long time. But in, in Friend of a Friend, there's a chapter about homophily which is this fancy Greek word, that. love of same, right? And it like attracts mm -hmm. like, birds of feather, et cetera. And I wrote it very specifically targeting 
where we are in the United States as a country in, pol- in political polarization. I wrote, in fact, I wrote the majority of that chapter on November 9th, I think, or 10th, whichever was the morning <laughs> after the presidential election, right? Because I, I see this thing that I don't think anybody believed was going to happen, happen. And of course, half of my Facebook and Twitter feed are full of people going, I don't know how this guy got elected. I don't know anybody that supported this guy. And me in my mind, like I grew up in New England. Now I live in Oklahoma. I was like, I know people mm-hmm. that vehemently believed both of these candidates were the savior. Right. <laughs> right. So how you're, do- you're, you're in a real crossover area where you live and being at a university. For sure. Yeah. You you are in a unique spot to actually. Oh, no, I know several people who voted for each. Right. Exactly. And and <laughs> and, and Tulsa, Oklahoma, where I, where I am, too, is a very it's sort of like a miniature Austin. It's a very blue city in a very mm. red area. Right. I'm from um, Tucson, Arizona. Yeah. Similar. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you, so you got it right. So, so on multiple different levels, we've got these connections. And so that made me really interested in seeing like, well, how does this happen? How did we get so polarized, et cetera. And we talk about the research that like, not even on a state by state level, on a county by county level, people are choosing where to move based on where they feel most comfortable politically. And so mm-hmm. uh, blue counties are getting blue or red counties are getting redder. Gerrymandering is a huge problem, but people are also moving into gerrymandered districts, right? Um, so it compounds. Sure. And of course, being a trained as a psychologist originally, I'm thinking like, okay, well, why, why, why have we all lost our minds and decided to only be comfortable around people that believe what we already believe. And what I found in the research, at least through the world of network science, is that that's actually the minority effect. The bigger effect is just that fact that if we are interacting with the same few people, the likelihood of us getting introductions to people who think differently shrinks over time, right? So if if you spend if you just spend a tiny bit more time with four or five people who are really similar to you, then who are you going to meet that sixth new that person that you're going to meet? You're going to meet it through one of those four, right? And so over time, mm-hmm. the clustering happens over time accidentally, like we organically cluster um, towards these poles or towards our different. Um, you you also see it in sort of functional clustering in organizations. This is where silos come from, et cetera. And just to mm-hmm. say that we desire diversity or just to say that, look, I've made the decision to seek out people who disagree with me just to say that actually isn't enough because it doesn't counteract the network effect that's going on. Diversity is a real network problem, not just a psychological problem. And I I was not expecting that. Um, The good news, ironically, is that if it's a network problem, you don't need to change people's minds in order to get to, to reverse the polarization, right? You just need to change their network. And so to the extent that you can manufacture instances where they run up against people who think differently than, than them, but also have things in common unrelated politically, we can kind of reverse it, right? Or, or to the extent that as an organization, you put on shared events or activities that require people from different departments to interact with each other uh, a little bit differently, you can reverse some of that siloization, et cetera, right? Because if it's psychological, you've got to change people's minds. But this, you actually just have to change their activities and behaviors. And believe it or not, one of the ironies of what we know from psychology is that it's easier to change someone's behavior than it is to change their mind. It's easier to change your friends than it is to change your life. That's CBT, right? In essence? pretty much. Um, Yeah, on that, it makes me think, you're facing another enemy with a situation called the algorithm, yeah, if well, you look yeah. At all so, of social, you go down these trails and do an echo chamber because every time you click, you get the dopamine and they go, Oh, he likes that. Give him a little more. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and people have been talking about the filter bubble 
um, for a while. I, I don't have a solution to that one other than change the algorithm. The irony is you change the algorithm, you're going to drop, drop the stock price of all, of all of these companies, right? I'm okay with that. Yeah, no, I mean, I personally, <laughs> I, I am too, but I can understand why they wouldn't be interested in changing their algorithm. Right. So, um, right. I truthfully, I think, I think the solution for most of us is to just like get offline, power that phone down, switch to the little blue brick Nokia phone that I had before I had my iPhone. Right. Um, Probably true. I think, and, and ironically, we're seeing that, that movement. I was really careful when I was writing friend of a friend to not put a lot of social media, um, tips and tricks and things like that in for one reason, because they always change as soon as we went to print, I'm sure like LinkedIn would have changed something about their interface. And then my whole book would be out of date. Oh, sure. Um, but for the other, I'm, I'm very quick to say that social media should be a, a supplement or excuse me, a complement to not a replacement for your existing offline networks. You still need to be meeting people face to face. And we see it not only in that polarization increase, but the people who, who mistake real like likes for real human interaction are more sure. likely to end up suffering from depression and feelings of loneliness and all sorts of stuff. So it gets bad on multiple levels when we log um, too much of that online time for sure. Well, and that's, I'm guessing too, I'm mostly on social media to self-promote. Well, I mean, we all are. <laughs> we all are. Some of us are just denying it. <laughs> but it's like, I have a podcast. I want people to listen. I do want to participate in communities and research and just get a feel what things are. But I'm of the mindset, everything I print is immediately broadcast to the whole world all the time. Yeah. I mean, I, I will say I have, I've done a couple different things in this regard to balance that tension of, of when you're a personality, um, whether it's as a podcaster, as a writer, et cetera, this is, there's no replacement. Cal Newport is the only person who has figured out how to do it. And truthfully, he did it by starting really early with an email based subscription blog. And now he sort of doesn't care. Right. Um, mm. but I don't, I don't even know that he could replicate his success if he started in 2019 because of this necessity of social. Right. Um, so I found a couple different ways to balance it. I, um, like here's my one hack. I, on my, um, computer and on my phone, I don't know. I don't know how to do it on the app. So I took the app off and I made a, mm. for Facebook, I made a, a home icon that is basically a bookmark. So it looks like an app, but it's actually the web based platform. And mm -hmm. it is linked to, to the groups page, like facebook.com slash groups. Why? Cause groups are actually the only thing I care about. Right. Um, and I'm, mm -hmm. I'm in groups that I know I have a diversity of thought. Some of them drive me nuts because it's a diversity of thought I disagree with, but, um, <laughs> yeah. but I know that's good for me. And what I don't do, what I do is I bypass the newsfeed in that regard. Right. Um, ah. because now I'm not seeing all of that stuff. Some of which is, I mean, even if you say things I agree with, but you like, I unfollowed my mom, my mom and I believe pretty much <laughs> the same stuff politically, but she's a little crazy. Um, so, or I mean, I would okay. say, well, I don't know if we believe the same thing politically, but we vote the same way, but her posts are a little wackadoodle. So I've unfollowed her. Right. Um, so I'm very quick to unfollow in that newsfeed, but I also, I want to get to the groups because the groups is where real discussion happens these days it doesn't happen on the timeline because the timeline is is designed to show you things that you um click like on etc i will say i'm not seeing that in the linkedin algorithm but nonetheless i yeah i'm very yes yeah precisely i'm starting i'm starting to see it I'm, as I'm very quick to unfollow um on linkedin as well i basically decide i, I sh it takes forever 
But I decided to shape that newsfeed by unfollowing lots of people to be who are the like 50 people that I want to actually dialogue with on this platform that are active here. Um, Twitter is the same way. I just, I skip the newsfeed to go right to the notifications because that's people replying to the things that, um, that I put. And when I, I post, even if I'm not even for scheduling, I post everything in buffer, even if I click share now, because that's the only one where I don't see anything. I just put my post up there and it sends it out there. And then I'll just check notifications for replies. And the dialogue part is what I care about. I don't want to mindlessly scroll through those news feeds full of clickbait. I just don't want to do it. Okay, so you treat it as if you were a broadcaster versus for sure, for sure, and I, and I and I have it takes forever, but I deliberately. I mean, it takes forever to do it in one sitting, but you save yourself hours of your life over the next year. Um, I deliberately sculpt it in that in that way. I I actually joke with a lot of people that Christmas, mostly because it works for my schedule. The week between Christmas and New Year's is my purge time. It's when I go back through all of those feeds and go, okay, mm. what do I need to fix? Who do I need to refollow, unfollow? What do I need to like, do I need to change a URL so that I'm always being taken to the groups page instead of the homepage, right? What, what are, what little tweaks do I need to do to that for next year? Um, and then I check back in again the following year, but all of it is shaped. Um, I wouldn't necessarily just say broadcaster because I am interested in the dialogue, but like, I'm interested in people who are responding to what I broadcast and having a conversation with them. Right. What I'm not interested in is getting into that endless scrolling mentality. Um, not only because it's not good for me and I waste a ton of time, but like it doesn't help me understand people's point of view. When they disagree with something I post and we engage in dialogue, I benefit. When I just see a bunch of people agreeing with me, it doesn't matter. That's true. I have a strange rule. Whenever I read something or come across it and it just matches everything that I would assume about a person or a thing, I assume that it's false and immediately go research to find it. 99% of the time it is false because it just matches up too perfectly. No, I mean, that's, that's, that's pretty fair. It's, it reminds, there's this great um, story about Alfred P. Sloan, the longtime CEO of General Motors in the, in the boardroom and basically says, you know, gentlemen, they were unfortunately all gentlemen at the time in the boardroom. Gen gentlemen, I think we're all in agreement about the next step that we need to take as a company. And one by one, everyone nods his head and he goes, well, then I propose that we suspend this meeting and come back when one of you has figured out a reason why this plan won't work and then just leaves the room. Um, <laughs> and and I, I love it because, again, it's that act actively cultivating dissent thing. Um, yeah. Well, perfect. How can people get a hold of you and keep the conversation going and learn about your books? Well, I guess I shouldn't plug social media here because we've spent so much time trashing it. But um, Yeah, but you can get there through your site. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like, the, <laughs> I mean the, single best, the single best place is actually your site, right? Show notes for this page, this episode. You already listened to the show, right? So um, go there. If you want to go to davidberkus.com, great. I'm sure that you will click to it anyway. Um, so yeah, it's all there, but somewhere on the, on the vastness of the interwebs, I, there is one other David Burkus, but I have managed to drown him in Google results. So if you type my name into Google, you'll find the platform that you want to interact with me on. And then we'll go from there. His SEO is strong. <laughs> there is actually a Dave <laughs> Burkus spelled differently with like E R K U S that writes about personal finance. And sometimes he cramps up in that first page and I got to do some work to, to get him back down on the second. <laughs> well, I'll let you get to it. Hey, thanks so much for coming on. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you heard, please consider subscribing for free. And I mean, for free. It is always free. 
There's no billing, anything else. You can subscribe in your player of choice, which is probably right in your hands, or you can go to unstructuredpod.com, and there are plenty of links there. Thank you so much. And in the spirit of sharing, here's a couple more shows you may want to check out. Laughter, tears, celebrities, newsmakers, anecdotes, and recipes. Wait, I was wrong. They don't do recipes. You can't hear food. <clears throat> Join host Randall Kenneth Jones, a man who is not the original cowboy in the village people, and announcer Susan C. Bennett, the woman who is the original voice of Siri, every week on Jones.show, a podcast so accessible its name is a web address, www.jones.show. Hi, this is Kara Mayer Robinson, and I host Really Famous. I interview A-list celebrities. I dive deep because I used to be a therapist. This is what Tim Gunn said. I just have this antipathy for the judges. I can't stand being in the same room with them. Tim Daly. If you're not working in L.A. and you're an actor, there's no worse place to be. Michael Rappaport. I changed schools every year from the third grade to the twelfth grade. Disruptive was my thing. Chaz Palminteri. I knew something was going on. I said, I got to talk to somebody. It's Really Famous. It's like eavesdropping on a therapy session. 